0: All right, the message is, what about evangelism? You know, the gift of evangelism is the most amazing demonstration of God's power. As the word of God goes forth and the Holy Spirit works in the heart of people to respond to the invitation of salvation. The late Billy Graham is a classic example of the evidence of this divine power and the gift of evangelism. As he spoke to millions through the years and many came to saving faith. It is amazing that a man can stand up, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, do such a work. And then people, when the invitation is given, they get up and they come. Then another person will do that and nobody comes. Because they don't have the gift of evangelism. But... They do the work of an evangelist always. That's the responsibility for all of us. Okay? God is the one who dispersed the gifts. God is the one who works in sovereignty. So we're not to feel proudful or bad. <laughs> we're just to be obedient to what God has for us. And we'll see this as we go through the scriptures tonight. Um, but what... It's interesting to me as the scriptures give the responsibility of pleading for the souls of lost men in the world, particularly those in positions of authority to the men of the church. They are to lift holy hands uh, without wrath and doubting to God for them in 1 Timothy 2, um, 1 and 2 and in verse 8. This doesn't mean women cannot pray, but God has given the headship of the church to men. The majority of things that go on in the church is taken and done by women to the embarrassment of men. God desires that men be the heads of their families and the church to direct and do the work of God. Women can do everything except be a pastor teacher from the pulpit over a congregation. Women here are involved tremendously and we have men also. So we're very fortunate. But for the most part, in the majority of churches, women are the ones who do the majority of the work of God. Men take a back seat. And that's why we focus on men. Men studies and do different things. And we encourage you. And we teach you so that you understand uh, the importance of your headship in the home and in the church. Let's look at evangelism through a three-fold lens. First, Evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel to save the lost. Secondly, evangelism has a human responsibility to be saved. And thirdly, evangelism is to be preached by a man of an approved character. Three lenses. This will help us to hang our thoughts on and see what the Bible says about The gift of evangelism and responsibility. Let's begin here with evangelism as a proclamation of the gospel uh, to save the lost. The proclamation of Paul regarding the gospel is clear and courageous. Listen to him in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is not to be confused with religion. Religion is man's attempt to reach God through rules, regulations, ceremony, and ritual. And thinking outwardly that you're pleasing God and you can do these things to get things from God. That's religion. Religion opposes God, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18 says. It denies God. It suppresses the truth of God. It corrupts it. It twists it religion is a step away from god worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator forevermore romans 12:5 jesus was the least religious man that ever walked this earth the pharisees the scribes were very religious men and he called them hypocrites Unrighteous. The gospel is God's revelation of himself, as you know, to man about the lost condition and the remedy to reconcile lost man and women to God. The word gospel means glad tithings of salvation through Christ. It's the proclamation of the grace of God manifested and pledged in Christ, no one else. He is the author of the gospel, Christ, Jesus. He is the subject of the gospel. He is the proclamation of the gospel as the Messiah by the angels to the shepherds, the one who would bring peace on earth and goodwill towards man in Luke 2, 10 through 14. Greatest news that's ever come to earth It's for all, it excludes none, and yet not all will accept it, believe it, or embrace it. We'll see this in our second point. The gospel is the message from heaven, therefore it is the only good news, as I said, that man has ever received. Everything else related to God has a human base and his deception and error. The Bible is the only absolute truth, God's revelation about himself, man, sin, salvation, and everything else that he touches that you can depend on 100% as absolute truth. And when you read other people's writings or commentary or even a pastor or preacher teaching, you must examine what it says so you can judge it to the word of God. It is the plumb line. He is the only way. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that one saving me, he destroyed every ism, every religion, every philosophy, Everything. The promise so you can get to heaven. He is the only name. Acts 4.12. There is no other na- name given under heaven and earth. Whereby men must or not should. it be nine. No. Must be saved. Not Buddha. Not Allah. Not Krishna. Not Mary. Not the Pope. Nobody but Jesus. He is the only mediator. 1 Timothy two five. The man, Christ Jesus. A meter between God and man. No one else. We pray only to Jesus. We pray to the Father through Jesus. Jesus said, In that day you shall ask me nothing. Pray the Father in my name. He will give it to you. He gives us a chain of command. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to virgins. We don't pray to our rosaries. We don't pray to to the, the, the priests to forgive our sins. We pray Jesus he is our intercessor no one else is sitting at the right hand of the father except for him no one else died for our sins except for him no one else is the son of God who became flesh and died in our place but him no one else Paul in that same verse of Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes For the Jew first and also for the Greek. The Jew first in terms of time. Jesus, the Messiah, was Jewish. And he was sent to his people, the Jews, Israel. So they had the first priority of responsibility to respond to the gospel. Many of them did, but many of them did not. Many more did not. And then from there, as you go through the book of Acts, when Paul gets to the last chapter of Acts, he shakes the dust off his feet, rejects the Jews, and he goes to the Gentile. And from that point on, more Gentiles came to the church than Jews. All right? So it's first the Jew in terms of priority of time, not importance. Okay? Time. Today is not Jew first. Okay? Jesus prayed over, wept over Jerusalem. And gave her up. That doesn't mean we don't preach to Jews. That doesn't mean we don't evangelize them. That doesn't mean we don't pray that they be saved. But it means that blindness and part is to them. Until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. And there are going to be very few Jews to come to Christ. Until God removes that veil from their face. So the majority of the church is Gentile. Today. Now, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek, as we saw there. And the word power means dynamic with the idea of natural inherent power residing by virtue of its nature. It's message from heaven. It is sourced in God. The word appears 120 times in the New Testament, eight in Romans. The word is identified as God's divine power, which is unlimited in contrast to human power, which is very, very limited. There is nothing that human power can do regarding your sin, the forgiveness of your sin, to control your sin, or to bury your sin in the deepest ocean, or to save you. There is no human power that can do that. Only the power of the gospel. The word salvation, as you know, Soteria means to rest your deliver, describing the efficiency of God through the gospel to save a man or a woman from their sins and the power of sin. A man is separated from God because of sin, but he can be reconciled to God through the gospel. Man cannot hide his sins, but God can forgive man's sins through the gospel. Man cannot justify his sins. All he can do is confess his sins. Through the gospel. The invitation is all inclusive. As I said earlier. Universal. Jew, Gentile. Whoever will. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever will. Whoever believes. Should not perish. But have everlasting life. No one's excluded. The condition is personal belief in the gospel message that God is able to save man and do what he promises through repentance. The gospel tells me how lost and blind I am spiritually and that I'm an enemy of God and that the wrath of God resides on me. But did God sent his son to die for me and he died in my place. He's tasted death for me and he rose from the dead And he is able to forgive me of my sins and change, transform my heart and make me his child through the power of the gospel, through the avenue of repentance. The word repentance means a change of mind about one's sin and lost condition. It's 180 degrees. You turn around completely. Acknowledging my sin, confessing my sin, abandoning my sin. And whenever possible, attempting to make restitution for my sins. That's not always possible. But whenever I can, I do. When through the years as I've run into people. And uh, I've gone up to them and asked forgiveness. When I was in the world. Can't bump into everybody. But um, you do once in a while. And you should take every opportunity. To say, you know. I'm a Christian. I want to ask you to forgive me. You know, I was stupid back then. What a witness. Important. Now the gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans one seventeen says. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Now the word righteousness <clears throat> is an important word in the New Testament. Appearing 92 times. And 36 times in the letter to the Romans. Romans is an incredible, incredible thesis. We've gone through it um, on Sunday morning, Sunday night. You you need to know it. You need to walk through it in your mind. Understand Romans. Justified by Christ. The word righteousness means to be right in a right standing with God. Uh, Second Corinthians 5:21 says that God made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In the atoning work of Jesus Christ, He did it all. As He said on the cross in John 19:30, He says, "It is finished." He made the, the payment to the Father, not Satan, as some people teach. The context in Roman, for the most part, deals with the righteousness that God has provided for a sinful man to be in a right standing before him. Justification. The righteousness that God has provided is efficacious that he will honor it alone. It's the only thing that can make me stand justified before God. It's the only thing that God honors for me to be one with him. The gospel is received by faith that responds to God's initiation. And trust by faith the revelation of the gospel for salvation, as well as faith to continue in salvation. The sinner knowing they could not do it by themselves. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, that not of ourselves. Hebrews 11. Those that come to God must believe that He is, and He's the one, the reward of those who diligently seek Him. Romans eleven one and six. The invitation to every sinner is this. This is how the Bible closes in the book of Revelation. Listen twenty two seventeen. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the waters of life freely. No one is excluded from Genesis to Revelation. Here's the proclamation of the gospel. You know, if all the unsaved people in the world were to line up in a single file at your front door... The line would reach around the world 30 times. In horror of horrors, this line would grow by 20 miles each day. If you were to drive 50 miles an hour for 10 hours each day, it would take four years and 40 days to get to the end of this line of lost souls. And by then, it would have grown by 30,000 miles, more than the distance around the earth at the equator ought to have us think about what we are doing or not doing to reach those who need Christ. Where would you be if someone had not shared Christ with you? Very important. Some say, well, that's not my gift. Yet sharing your faith is not limited to the gift of evangelism. It is the responsibility of every believer as the opportunity arises and it will every day. We just get caught up and busy with what we're doing. And we just, for sometimes we see it, we know it. But we just don't do it. Some will um, be open to the gospel and others will not. Learn to be sensitive while being persistent. Knowing that the excuses of man are Satan's lies. We can't force anybody and We've all known Christians who force themselves on people, and they're very obnoxious. And God wouldn't have you to do that. But but you also know when God opens a door that a semi can drive through, and you share, and God gives you the words, and the person listens, and sometimes they accept, and sometimes they don't. But that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility and mine is only to share the gospel. So evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel to save the lost. Second, evangelism has a human responsibility to be saved. The mandate of the Great Commission is for sinners to respond to Jesus. Uh, This is found in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. The Great Commission was given to his disciples. Uh, the word go is a participle along with baptizing and teaching, all implying action. It could be translated as you go, when you go, in your going. In other words, there was never any doubt that we're not to go. Once you're saved, you take the gospel. There is a great commission in each of the Gospels, one in the book of Acts, five great commissions to make sure we don't miss it. The last words of Jesus to his disciples, if you remember, was that they were to be his witnesses unto him, beginning in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the fifth great commission, Acts 1.8. The purpose of the church is to perfect the saints in Ephesians 4, 10 through 16. The church has taught and still teaches that the purpose of the church is to evangelize the world. It is not. The purpose of the church is to perfect the saints, to teach you the word of God, so you can grow, develop, and mature And know how to live your life, run your home, care for your children, and be able to share the gospel. First to be taught. Then the privilege of the church is to evangelize the lost and be fishers of men. When you have mature, grounded saints, now they know how to share, what to share, and when to share, and they're effective. One of the worst... For the word preach is the word caruso, and it means a herald. These men were men of importance, integrity, and character. They were employed by kings or states or magistrates for public proclamations. The authority was not theirs, it was vested to them by the one who hired them to make the proclamation. The message was not theirs. It was given to them. So the message is given to them. The authority is vested to them. They were not responsible for the people's response of the message. They were only responsible for the proclamation of the message. This is what you and I are. I am just one to proclaim the message. I am not responsible for people's response. I've never saved one person. I didn't even save myself. God saves people. The men of the house of God are to be the channels and heralds of the gospel. The very same word is ascribed to believers. The gift of evangelism is to be exercised in the body, in the church. The church is to do the work of evangelism now we have concerts we go door-to-door we go up to, uh, to uh, uptown here in Pasadena um, uh, we go down to Mexico and we do evangelism there through medical outreaches there's various ways that we can do evangelism it's not limited to just um, one-on-one there are many ways to share The pastor is to do the work of an evangelist if there is not an evangelist. So I never give a message or a teaching, whether it be verse by verse exposition or a topical one, without ever giving an invitation at the end. Because I don't know if there's unbelievers here over the Internet or like right now, they're listening to us somewhere in the world. And I believe the power of the gospel to do for them what I cannot do for myself or for them. God is able to do that. So I'm fully confident what God can do. That's important. The word evangelist, remember, means the messenger of good news. Philip is the only one called an evangelist in the scriptures. But there are many others who evangelize. So in Acts twenty-one eight, he's the only one called an evangelist. But Paul evangelized, and Stephen evangelized, and Timothy did the work of evangelist. So there's many people that we see evangelize, but he's the only one that's called an evangelist. Paul told Timothy he was to do the work of evangelist in 2 Timothy four five. That means he was not. He didn't have to get the gift of evangelism. He was a pastor teacher, but Nevertheless, he was to do the work of an evangelist. Evangelism is the ministry of reconciliation that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20. It's the ministry where we proclaim and tell people that they can get right with God if they believe what God says and how they can get right with God. Paul puts it this way. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, 1 Corinthians nine sixteen. The gospel is so of such importance that if we do not preach it, there is no hope for mankind. Very important. The motive behind evangelism is the love of Christ that is to constrain us, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse fourteen. We are driven by the love of Christ in view of his vicarious death for all. He died in our place. He tasted death for us. It says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Verse 14 there of 2 Corinthians 5. We are driven by the love of Christ to live for him. It says, And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again verse 15 of second corinthians 5 so what moves us and motivates us is that we have been partakers of it and the love of christ constrains us compels us and almost drives us to share because we know what it is to be lost And we know that if people die without the gospel and their sins being forgiven, they will perish in all eternity if they die without Christ. Unbelievers don't know this. You and I didn't know this. We thought we were okay. As long as I can get a priest before I die, I'm okay. I was raised Catholic, right? Or, or, or the idea that, you know, I've done enough good that I think I can kind of balance it out. Really? Wow. The Bible says there's not one good. No, not one. Not even you. So all these hopeful things that people put their trust in is is like walking on a, a, a lake that's frozen, but it's very shallow. And they walk on it an, and they can crack at any time. It's false hope agape love is the only motive that God honors for anything we do, due to, due to the fact that agape love never fails. First Corinthians thirteen one through eight makes it very clear. Agape love is the distinguishing mark of the church and disciples in john thirteen thirty five We're to be known for that. Now today the church wants to exalt love. Let's just love one another at the expense of doctrine. That's a contradiction of the commands and the teaching of scripture. If you don't know the word of God, then how are you going to know how to love and who to love? God doesn't want you to love people the way you love them in the world. Because you always got the most out of it and the other one got the short end of the stick. And so it's important that we're grounded in the word of God and then we can be instruments of God's love. Very important. We are driven knowing people are separated from God. They have no hope without Christ, as I said, in the world. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. That's one of the darkest descriptions of man in the Bible. No hope without God in the world. They're under God's wrath, John three thirty six. Why? Because God is holy and man is sinful. And God cannot look upon sin with any condolence, any permission or any approval. God has to judge sin. Either He judges it on the person or He judged it in the Son. And if I accept the Son, then He took the wrath for me and therefore I am justified in the Son. There's no other way I can stand before God. We are driven knowing people have not experienced the forgiveness of their sins or the peace by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. And so we not only have the understanding of what the Word of God says, but we have experienced personally what we understand and others don't. Sinners do not know the terror of the Lord as we do. So we persuade them to repent, Second Corinthians 5.11. We've all talked to friends or family members, and, and, and you're pouring your heart out to them. Yeah, I know, and I'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And they're not worried at all. They're in this burning building. But they can't see it. But you can. We're not to be like the wicked and uncompassionate servant of Matthew eighteen, twenty three to thirty five. Well, God has forgiven me so much, and I can't forgive you the little that you do against me. Because I know how much God has forgiven me, right? We're not to see them as Simeon saw the woman who entered his house and washed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair of the prostitute in Luke seven thirty-six. We're to see a sinner calling out for God for salvation, God making them brand new. We're like to be like the man like in the pool of Bethesda. That um, instead of being like him, who waited there for thirty-eight years, and Jesus asked him, "Do you want to be healed?" He says, "Yeah." He he picked up his bed and he just went home. He he should have picked somebody else up and put him in the pool because he knows what it is to sit there for that many years and and not be able to get to the pool, right? Those who have been forgiven much, love much, Jesus said. See, sinners are not disciples of Jesus, but disciples of the world. Have you forgotten where you were? Things you were involved? And now you come to Christ and you realize the grace of God and how blind you were, how far away from God you were and his mercy over your life. That's through evangelism. They're blind to the things of God, deaf to the voice of God, and dead to the life of God, as you and I were at one time. The most important reason for evangelism is also that Jesus is coming. The Lord gave three disciples a preview of his Second coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. We just saw it a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 16, 28, the chapter 17, verse 3 of Matthew. They saw Elijah and Moses talking about the Lord's death, his exodus from the world after his resurrection in Luke 9, 31, too. They saw a preview of Jesus in his glory at the second coming as he promised in Matthew 16, 28. They saw the second coming. The Lord promised the 12 that they would sit upon 12 thrones in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, When he set up his kingdom. Now they had the Jewish mind, so they thought that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom in his first coming. And so they started bidding for him, James and John. We're going to um, see this um, on, uh, on Sunday morning in Matthew. And they began to bid for the right hand, the left hand. They even got their mommy to go along. Because they didn't believe in that second coming, even though they saw it. Not until after the day of Pentecost. Angels approved the disciples. I'm sorry, reproved the disciples for gazing up at the clouds when Jesus ascended up on high and told him that he would return in like manner in Acts one eleven. Why do you men stand here gazing at the clouds? The very same way he's left, he's going to come back. Second coming. Now, if Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming, what would make you think that he's not coming in second time? On what basis would you would you make that declaration or even embrace? God can't lie. Prophecies, divine foretelling of what's going to happen before it happens, so when it happens, you know it's God. They were to return to Jerusalem and wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit that would be given to them in Acts one eight to be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. 3,000, by the way, were added in that day to the church <laughs> as Peter preached evangelism. They were to occupy till Jesus returned, Luke 19, 13 tells us, and the entire world and every eye shall see him when he does come back in Revelation 1, 7. So the second coming is a very important reason to evangelize. Because we know that he can come back. Jesus... will return and he will build again the tabernacle of David. James said this in the first church council in Acts fifteen 16. First, he is choosing a bride for himself among the Gentiles. Second, he will once again deal with the nation of Israel during the seven-year tribulation. One fifth of Scripture is prophecy, 20% of the Bible. One third of that 20% of prophecy concerns the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, churches today look down on prophecy, they don't study prophecy, they think it's irrelevant. Rick Warren certainly tells you that Jesus never said about anything about studying prophecy. You're wasting your time studying prophecy. Really, Rick? And they call him the pastor of the U.S. or something. They've given him a lot of different titles. Now, let me see. Let me get this right. Jesus says prophecy is important. Rick Warren says it isn't. Who am I going to believe? Wow. When you're influential, you better watch your mouth because God will hold you responsible of what your words do to the people of God as well as the unbeliever. The model of the first century church was uh, an evangelistic church, as you know. All Jerusalem heard the gospel, Acts 2 says, The lame man at the temple gate, called Beautiful, was healed and converted through Peter and John in Acts 3. As they're going to the temple, they saw him there, and God gave word of knowledge to Peter and John, and, you know, word of knowledge, and then faith and miracle. And he says, uh, he thought he was going to receive some money, and says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he began to leap and praise God and hanging on to Peter and John. And and he said, why do you guys look upon us and gaze upon us as if this man stands whole by something that we have done in ourselves? Be it known to you that this man stands whole by the name of Jesus Christ and faith in him. Wow. Stephen preached the gospel to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7 that cost him his life. Philip evangelized Samaria in Acts 8. Peter evangelized the house of Cornelius in Acts 10. Barnabas and Paul were called out by the Holy Spirit to evangelize the world by missionary journeys, beginning in Acts 13. Paul, Silas, and Timothy evangelized Europe. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens at Mars Hill, and Corinth, Acts 15-18. through Evangelism. He also taught, but he went out and evangelized and set up churches. The proclamation of the gospel is powerful enough to convict a man's soul and call him out of darkness, but he has to respond to the gospel. It doesn't happen automatically. There's that human responsibility. Charles Spurgeon once uh, while testing the acoustics um, in our our agricultural hall in London, rang out over the empty building. Quote, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. A workman up in the ceiling heard the message, was convicted, went home, knelt before the Lord, and found salvation. power of the gospel. Mr. Spurgeon was ignorant to where the man was. The words went forth. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And the Spirit of God brought conviction and illumination. But the man had to repent. God will not repent for you. He will not force you to repent. He will give you the ability to repent. And the understanding that you have to repent... But you decide where you're going to spend eternity, heaven or hell. Not God. Not God. Having experienced the love of God in our lives, or to desire that others come to experience the same comfort then. It's God's nature. We're children of God. He withholds no good thing from us, and so we don't want to withhold whatever good we can do to others, especially when it comes to their eternal state. Having experienced peace with God and the peace of God through the forgiveness of our sins, uh, we should be driven by the same godly jealousy by the Holy Spirit of God for others. It is he working in us. As you begin your day, when you wake up, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Lord, direct my thoughts, my steps. Let me be tuned to you. Having escaped the wrath of God to come and being certain of it for those who are lost should cause us to be heartbroken for any who perish at death. When I do funerals, the message of the gospel is for the living, not the dead. I minister the gospel to all who are there alive. Warning them that they may be next. And what would happen if they were? It's too late for the dead person. If they died in Christ, they're in heaven. If they died apart from Christ, nothing can be done. They're lost. No second opportunity. Any pastor, any religion, any philosophy that tells you... That you have a second opportunity after you die is a deceiver and a liar. Get away from them. You make your decision before you leave. Just like you would have to make reservations for vacation before you get there. You can't just drive up and say, hey, I need a room. They may not have it. Very important. And so evangelism has a human responsibility to be saved. Now, some would say, well, you're working for salvation. That's Calvinism. No, you're not working for nothing. God convicts you. God illuminates you. God enables you to say yes or no. You're the one that does it. But you have no excuse. So that way, when you stand before God, and and if you reject the gospel, and he says, why did you not receive me? You will never be able to say, I never heard the gospel. That's why everyone has to at least hear the gospel one time. How's that going to happen? I don't know. But I know one thing. If God sent his son to die for every person ever to be born in this world, he will give that chance at least one time. Otherwise, he couldn't be just. He couldn't be loved. He couldn't be fair. He couldn't be loved. He'd have to be a liar. It's not my responsibility to know how or where or when. Knowing his nature, he makes himself responsible for that. And that's a great Lord off our mind. We shouldn't worry about that. He's faithful. Thirdly, we have evangelism is to be preached by a person of approved character. The person involved in evangelism is to be a person of prayer, first of all. Jesus said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, therefore we are to pray that we faint not, Matthew twenty six, forty one. Prayer is a discipline. It's talking. It's not using big words. It's not reading prayers. It's like talking to people. How would you feel some people pray, Oh, God, Heavenly Father, and this and that, and you're mighty God. What would you feel if your son came in and said, Oh, Father, can I have a dollar? I need to go to the show. That's kind of insulting, isn't it? he said, hey, Dad, can I have some money to go to the show? You bring your niece to the Lord. You talk to him, right? You have a relationship with him, right? You don't have to make your voice shake or act weird or put it on high tone or impress people with the vocabulary. Prayer is not giving information to God. It's lifting your heart to the Lord so he can direct and guide you in your prayer. That's what prayer is about. Jesus was praying at his baptism, as you know, in Luke three twenty-one. Paul says, By prayer we can escape anxiety and have peace with God in Philippians four, six through seven. Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known unto God. And the peace of past all understand will rule your heart and minds. Paul tells us the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered according to the will of God in Romans eight, twenty six and twenty seven. So God works in and through us in a way that we cannot work for ourselves. We depend on the third person of the Spirit of God. Jude commands us to pray in the Spirit in Jude 20. To command every person. The apostles would not be deviated from prayer. To serve tables in Acts 6.4. They gave themselves to prayer and the Word of God. The person involved in evangelism is also to be a person of the word. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Luke 4, 4, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. Some people think the word of God is not that important. It's very important for your life. I mean, certainly eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner is important to you, right? Sometimes you get busy, you skip a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner, but, and if you get in a real jam one day, you may not eat anything at all because you're busy or when something happens, an emergency, you may have some coffee, but you can't do that every day, right? The same with the Word of God. You need to not only just read the Word of God so God ministers to you, to read through the Bible once a year is nothing. Nothing. Five chapters a day. Five days on, two days off, you got it lick Read ten chapters. You have got to read it twice a year. That's just for you to read, so God can minister to you. Then get in the book and tear it apart and start studying it. Start with a little one, one chapter, Jude, Philemon. Then go to a two chapter, Second John, Third John. Then a four chapter, then a five chapter. Then pretty soon you're Isaiah, sixty-six chapters. You work your way through, it's just like from kindergarten to high school. It takes twelve years, right? Did you get in kindergarten and say, oh, man, it's going to be so long? No, you just take one year at a time, right? The apostles would not leave the study of God's teaching to serve tables. Again, Acts six four. Paul tells the churches to teach the word in order that... People be equipped, not be tossed to and fro with every one of doctrine in Ephesians 4, 6, 11 through 16. And Paul tells us that all I need as a man of God is the word of God in 2nd, 3, 3 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God as powerful for doctrine, correction and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly first unto every good work. You want to be a doctor? Go to medical school. You want to be an engineer? Go to engineering school. You want to be a godly man or woman? Get in the Word of God. Not devotional books. Nothing wrong with them. That's not where you become a man of God. You need the Word of God. Very important. The book of Hebrews tells us that the Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, discerning between the soul and the spirit, a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God nails us. It exposes us. convicts us. Peter tells us we are to crave the word as the baby craves milk, unadulterated milk. 1 Peter 2, 2-3. You ever see a baby brought home? And mom grabs them right away They're like little baby birds. It's natural. If you're a Christian, you should hunger for God's milk when you first come to the Lord. Then you move on to meat, solid foods. You build up that hunger. The person involved in evangelism is also to be a person full of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah proclaims the principle for the Christian. Here it is, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, not by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord. The sooner you and I understand that apart from him we can do nothing, the sooner we'll trust and depend only upon him and everything. Jesus demonstrated the absolute need as he um, was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to defeat Satan in the wilderness in Luke 4.1. He was literally driven, thrust to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, it says. Paul says, we are to be consciously filled with the Holy Spirit continuously, ongoing. Ephesians five eighteen. It could be translated, keep on keeping on being filled. There isn't a time where you and I can afford not to be filled. Any more than your car can afford to be on empty gas wise. Might be a nice car. Might be an expensive car. But it has no gas. It's worthless. Absolutely worthless. Paul says the first thing we must do in order to put on the armor of God is to be strong in the Lord and then put on the armor of God, His might. Ephesians 6.10. While David uh, Brenner, one of the most celebrated of our missionaries, was laboring among the poor, an unenlightened Indian on the banks of the Delaware, he once said, I care not where I live or what happens or what hardships I go through. So that I can but gain souls for Christ. While I am asleep, I dream of these things. As soon as I awake, the first thing I think of is the great work. All my desire is the conversion of sinners and all my hope is in God. Wow. You've seen fanatics, right? We call fanatics, you know, basketball guys. They're they're all painted up and all that. They're into it. They're sold out. But if you're a fanatic for Jesus, people think you're weird. Listen, it, it, the best kind of fanatic is one for Jesus. Because it deals with the eternal things. All the rest of fanaticism is temporal things. It's like cotton candy. It's good right now. It's gone tomorrow. Promises much, delivers little. But not the gospel. Are you preparing yourselves through the Word of God to be able to give an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies in you with meekness and fear? 1 Peter 3.15 Someone comes up and says, Where in the Bible does it say that Adam and Eve fell? Where does sin come from? Who is Satan? What does repentance mean? Can you answer them? Can you take them and say, Right here, read this and point into the Bible. Are you praying for open doors as God promised the Church of Philadelphia to share the gospel with those around you that He would um, bring to you? He will open those doors that no man can shut, He will close doors that no man can open. I trust Him for that. Are you yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit by God's. As God's holy instrument, for we have uh, this treasure in this earthen vessel that the excellence and the power may be of God and not of ourselves in 2 Corinthians 4 7. So that when God does the work through evangelism, we don't touch his glory. We don't even take any credit for it at all. And we just worship the Lord and thank him for his mercy and his goodness to allow us to be part of the work to see the work and to see the benefit that comes to those who repent through the gospel of Jesus Christ wow evangelism is to be preached by a person of approved character and so this is evangelism through the threefold lens that answers the question what about evangelism Evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel to save the lost. Evangelism has a human responsibility to be saved. And evangelism is to be preached by a man of approved character. That's evangelism. Now you need to do it. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. We thank you. We worship you. Thank you for tonight, the people that are here and Father, those over the Internet and out there in the world, different places they hear. If you're out there you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the Internet or out there somewhere in the world, God sent his son to die for you, to pay the price for your sin, to taste death for you. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, You can call upon him and ask him to forgive you and to give you a brand new heart and he will change your life and make you a son and a daughter of God by grace through faith. It's through repenting from your sin, acknowledging that you're a sinner, as he says, and that if you call upon him and confess your sins and accept him, he will make that transforming work in your life and bury your sins in the deepest ocean and never mention them again. If this is your desire, then this is your prayer of repentance to God, not to us, but to God who's going to do that work in you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.